Come follow me, the Savior said. Then let us in his footsteps tread. For thus alone can we... This is Lexi Austin, and you are listening to The Savior Said, Season 3, Portraits of the Old Testament. This is a monthly podcast that explores the women of the Old Testament, examining their lives and telling their stories. For accompanying artwork, follow me on Facebook and Instagram at The Savior Said. Hey guys, welcome back to The Savior Said. This is going to be the episode for Sarah, the wife of Abraham. We're going to talk a little bit about her. Um, Her story intertwines pretty closely with the story of Hagar. And I'm actually not going to talk about Hagar in this episode. I'm going to do a separate episode of Hagar and Lot's daughters. Um, There's some sexual content that goes along with their stories a little bit. Um, Specifically, there's some touchy points about rape. And I didn't really want to put that into Sarah's story as well. So there's going to be a separate episode that comes out for Hagar and the Daughters of Lot, and we're going to talk a lot about them in a separate episode. So just know that this one specifically is about Sarah. So as we jump in, one of the things I want to touch on is this is an opportunity for us to check our judgments at the door and to leave like our current world perspectives behind as we travel into the past. Um, For me, that was really tricky to do in some of these situations that Sarah finds herself in. But I found that as I did that, I started to understand who Sarah was more and more. I think a lot of times we fall into the trap where, you know, someone's either good or bad. You know, either they're a good person and everything they do is amazing or they are a bad person and everything they do is awful. And the truth of the story is people are people and they're a mix of both. Good people make bad choices. Bad people can do good things too sometimes. And so we can't just say like, oh, this person's bad and this person's good. So when we come to the Old Testament, one of the things that I really love about the women in the Old Testament is we see some of their flaws. So as we go through the story of Sarah, who's an incredibly faithful woman and over and over again was tested and tried and still stayed true to God, she does have some flaws. But we don't need to judge her too harshly for those flaws, but they are there. And I kind of love that because then when I look at my own flaws, I'm like, okay, I can overcome them like Sarah did, you know? So just all that to say, we're going to go in, we're going to explore all of Sarah's character, and um, it's going to be a good time, okay? So let's start off and see how the Bible introduces Sarah and Abraham. We're starting in Genesis 11:27. here. It says, now these are the generations of Terah. Terah begat Abram. Nahor and Haran, and Haran begat Lot. And Haran died before his father Terah in the land of his nativity in Ur of the Chaldees. And Abraham and Nahor took them wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarah, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, and the daughters of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. Okay, so pause there. First up. So our first side trip that we're going to go on, um, I'm using lots of different sources today, um, lots from the Jewish Midrash and from the Talmud, because Sarah is such an important part of the Jewish heritage and history. There's lots of stuff about her. And as we go and we look at that, I want you to know that whenever I talk about the Midrash or things like that, it's not gospel. And I'm just using it at this point to kind of flesh out the character of Sarah so we can kind of understand maybe, oh, hey, that's kind of an interesting idea. Let me ponder upon that and see what it does to bring me closer to God and to Christ, okay? So the first thing I want to ponder upon is the name Iscah. Because we see here, you know, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. So who was Iscah? Jewish heritage tradition says that Iscah might have been another name for Sarah. Okay, from Wikipedia, which I know some people doubt Wikipedia, but it's got some good sources in here too. It says, the difficult genealogy of Abraham and Sarah in Genesis 11, 29 led to confusion as to the identity of Iscah. The resolution found in the Talmud and other rabbinic sources is that Sarah was Iscah and Iscah was a seer. This meaning is derived from the Aramaic root of Iscah, which denotes seeing. This led to the tradition that Sarah was a prophetess, as great or greater than Abraham. The implication is that Iscah is kind of an alter ego for Sarah, and that when she turned to her prophetic side, she became Iscah. Okay, so I like this idea, you know, end quote from Wikipedia. I like this idea because it tells us that Sarah had a talent as a seer, and that could explain why she was so attractive because, I mean, she has these two run-ins with both Pharaoh and Abimelech where they're like, taken with her. They just think she's like the cat's meow. And I'm like, why was she, why was it such a big deal that they were like 
kidnapping her and stuff like that? Like, why was it such a big deal? Was she really like that hot of a babe? I don't know. But if she was like, you know, a very attractive woman and very beautiful, but then she also was a seer and a prophetess in those cultures and that society, that could be seen something kind of like mysterious and ooh, attractive because I don't I have never seen anything like this. And this is new and novel. And um, so maybe that could be part of it. Also, I like how it said that she was a prophetess in the Jewish tradition that could have been just as much of a prophetess as Abraham was a prophet. I like that idea because I like the idea of them being equals, Um, her being a helpmeet to Abraham and her having the same spiritual gift or a spiritual gift that made her an equal to Abraham. Um, In my mind, there are so many times in the story where she and Abraham are just evenly yoked, like they hold on to each other so tightly and she rises up again and again to be a super strong woman and a super strong wife to Abraham, a foundation to Abraham and a support to Abraham that, I don't know, I just really like the idea of her being a seer. Not gospel. That is totally rabbinic tradition, but it's interesting to ponder. Also, the name Jessica, just weird side note, the name Jessica comes from a character in a Shakespeare play, The Merchant of Venice, but it's Iska, was supposedly rendered as Jessica in an English Bible back in Shakespeare's day. So they think that the name Jessica actually comes from the name Iska, which is supposedly another name for Sarah. So interesting side note. Okay, so Sarah, Iska, but let's actually go see how Sarah is introduced. Um, we've already seen her introduced as Abraham's wife, and now we're actually going to go in and see what the scriptures have to say. Genesis eleven thirty says, but Sarai was barren. She had no child. Okay. So right there, Sarah is, and I'm going to use the words Sarai and Sarah interchangeably. I know that she was not Sarah yet, but I just, I'm going to use them interchangeably because it's easier for me. Anyway, so Sarah, Sarai was barren. Um, why does the Lord use infertility so much in the Old Testament and in the Bible? It's something I've pondered upon. You know, I've, if you've listened to the Savior Said podcast over the past few years, I've told my story um, multiple times. So for those of you who are new, I just want to give a quick rundown. Um, for a long time, I struggled with pain and stuff like that. And it turned out I had endometriosis and no one believed me until I was about 30 years old. And they finally went in and did a scope and they found that I was completely infertile. There was so much scar tissue from the endometriosis that I was unable to have children. And at that point, I got some bad medical advice from my doctor to have a complete hysterectomy to get rid of the endometriosis, even though it was on all of my other organs, too, down there. And so um, I had a hysterectomy at the age of 30, and that made it so that I will never be able to have children. Um, devastating, right? I had only been married for about three years, and now for the rest of my life, I'm never going to have children. So whenever I read these stories about these women suffering with infertility, it strikes real close to home and it's real hard. So I may get a little teary and like a little emotional during like, you know, our our times here with the women who are struggling with this stuff because it's something that I've been through and it hurts. And even before I was diagnosed and had the surgery and everything like that, still struggled with infertility. You know, there was that whole, the monthly roller coaster, I like to call it, where like, is this it? I feel a little pukey. Could this possibly be it? And then you take the test and it's negative and it's just like this huge letdown and it's so hard. And so I think about Sarah, where she's introduced as like the childless wonder. Like, here's Sarah. She's barren. She's infertile. That's all you need to know about her. Like, how hard is that? How hard would that have been in that society where Abram is kind of well thought of and it seems like he's pretty wealthy, especially when they go to Egypt and stuff like that, and she's not able to give him a child? You know, that's a lot of times how women were judged. Even today, sometimes it's how women are judged with their ability to give children, you know, to their husbands. And she was unable to do that. Did that make her insecure as a woman? I don't know. Okay, that I think plays into some of the stuff that happens later on, but it's just, it's hard. So why would the Lord continually use the story of infertility in the Bible um, through these women? And one of the things that I have come up with is that infertility is a great metaphor for relying upon the Lord because a lot of times we have no control over what happens in our life. It is completely in the hands of the Lord. And at that time, when Sarah and Abraham, they didn't have IVF. They didn't have all of this reproductive medicine that we have now, which still, 
By the way, even though we are thousands of years later in the future, we still really don't understand how the reproductive systems work all that well and the hormonal cycles and how children are conceived. We still have mega issues and lots of question marks when it comes to that. But even back then, they had even less of an idea of what we have now. And so really everything was up to God, right? So how many times in our life are we waiting on God to provide some sort of miracle? Because not just fertility-wise, but in any aspect of our life. So we look at Sarah waiting on the Lord, constantly praying through all these years of her life to the point where it seems impossible, and then a miracle happens. We have this story. The children of Israel have this story. So later on down the road, when they are wandering in the desert for all those years, thinking like they're never going to get out of the desert, they have this story to look back on and to hope and to give them hope. You know, so the metaphor of infertility, I think, is a really powerful one when we talk about waiting on the Lord and the Lord stepping in and making things possible when there is no way for them to be possible. I think that's why he uses that metaphor a lot in the scriptures and in the Old Testament specifically. Okay, so let's get back to Sarah and Abraham. So we start their story in Haran, which would today be in northwestern Syria. And Sarah and Abraham never really have a spot to call their own. They're constantly moving from area to area to area. They're visitors in a lot of places, and they never really have their own home settlement. And so not only does Sarah not have children, but she really doesn't have a settled, like, permanent home base either. She's constantly moving from place to place with Abram, and that had to be hard as well, I would think. Like, I think of it as almost like living out of a suitcase, but I guess they were in a tent, so they were living out of their tents constantly everywhere they went. Very nomadic lifestyle. I don't know if that's how Sarah grew up. I probably should know that. I probably should go back and research it, but I don't know if that's how she grew up or if that was something she was accustomed to. I don't know. The stability, though, of having a home, I think, would be something that I would have a hard time not having. Anyways, so they're in Heron. They're wandering around. Okay, and they are there with... Abram's father, and he starts worshiping idols, Terah. He starts worshiping idols. And we read in the book of Abraham in the Pearl of Great Price, Abraham 2.15, it says, And I took Sarai, whom I took to wife when I was in Ur in Chaldea, and Lot, my brother's son, and all our substance that we had gathered, and the souls that we had won in Haran, and came forth in the way to the land of Canaan, and dwelt in tents as we came on our way. So they leave the land of Haran because Terah began worshiping idols. And so he takes, let's see, Lot his brother's son, so that would be his nephew, and all of our substance that we had gathered, and then the souls we had won in Haran. Okay, so that phrase kind of makes me pause. I'm like, who are the souls that he had won in Haran? So obviously he had some sort of mission. Maybe he was preaching there and, you know, had some converts. Well, I found out what that that phrase means, because of course I was pondering upon it. And Camille Frank Olson in her book, The Women of the Old Testament, which by the way, I quoted from extensively in Eve, and it was amazing. And you need to go get that book, The Women of the Old Testament by Camille Frank Olson. She's got an answer to this. Who were the souls that they had won in Haran? She says, a Midrash rabbinic tradition or legend speaks of Abram devoting himself for two years and turning the hearts of men to God and his teachings, suggesting a scenario for how they may have won many souls in Haran. Sarai was equally involved in this missionary endeavor according to the Jewish tradition. While Abram exhorted the men and sought to convert them, the Midrash reads, Sarai addressed herself to the women. She was a helpmeet worthy of Abraham. Indeed, in prophetic powers, she ranked higher than her husband. She was sometimes called Iska the seer on that account. Okay, again, that came from the Jewish Midrash. So, a mission of two years in Haran. Hmm, does that sound familiar? A two-year mission? Interesting how our lives today reflect back to the Old Testament times, huh? That's a pretty cool, I think, um, reflection that we have there going on. So to your mission to Haran. And I also love, again, that Sarah is a helpmeet for Abraham. She is his other piece in every single way. She is a strong spiritual leader for the women while he is a strong spiritual leader for the men. And together, they're able to go about converting the many souls that they had won in Haran to bring with them. Okay, so they've got them. Then the famine comes and it's time to go to Egypt. Why Egypt? Why are they going to Egypt? Well, this is during the Middle Kingdom period of Egypt. It's a time of enlightenment, prosperity, just great study and resources. They, the Egyptians were really proud of what they had done because they were transferring from the Old Kingdom to the Middle Kingdom. They had lots of new ideas and they were very wealthy. They had pharaohs who were reigning for longer periods of time. 
And when you have a king who's reigning for a longer period of time, your entire area enjoys more stability, which means more economic development, which means more peace um, and just stability in general. And so they had this really great society. And interesting thing about the Egyptian society then was that they were very welcoming to outsiders because they wanted to show off like how amazing they were. And so they said, come on in, guys, come check out our superior society. And they even had a specific area for these outsiders, these foreigners to reside. And it was the underdeveloped area of Goshen near the eastern delta of the Nile. So come in, come see how awesome we are, and then come be part of our amazing society and help generate wealth for all of us here in Egypt, right? So that's probably where Abraham and Sarah would have gone to reside in when they came to Egypt during the famine. Now, then this is where all the sister stuff begins, where it's like Abraham says, please be my sister or tell people you're my sister. Okay, so let's read in Genesis 12, 11. And it came to pass when he was come near to enter into Egypt, that he said unto Sarai, his wife, behold, now I know that thou art a fair woman to look upon. Therefore, it shall come to pass when the Egyptians shall see thee, that they shall say, this is his wife, and they will kill me and they will save thee alive. Say, I pray thee, thou art my sister, that it may be well with me for thy sake, and my soul shall live because of thee. Okay, so say you're my sister so they don't kill me. That seems almost a little bit cowardly and kind of like wimpy, but if we look at the book of Abraham, it actually says that the Lord told Abraham to tell Sarah, to tell people that she was his sister. Let's read it. Abraham 2.22. And it came to pass that when I came near to enter into Egypt, the Lord said unto me, Behold, Sarai thy wife is very fair woman to look upon. Therefore it shall come to pass when the Egyptians shall see her, they will say, She is his wife, and they will kill you, but they will save her alive. Therefore see that you do on this wise. Let her say to the Egyptians, She is thy sister, and thy soul shall live. And it came to pass that I, Abraham, told Sarah my wife, all that the Lord had said unto me. Therefore, say unto them, I pray thee, thou art my sister, that it may be well with me for thy sake, and my soul shall live because of thee. Okay, so there's a couple things that I love about this. First of all, I like that the Lord was the one who told Abraham to do that. That makes Abraham not so cowardly. It makes him more, um, he's following the Lord and he's being obedient to the Lord. And I feel like that's more in line with his character. And then when he turns to Sarah and tells her to do this thing and she follows the Lord, that's more in line with her character as well. The other thing that I really like about these two scriptures, both in Genesis and Abraham, we see both of it. There on the end where it says, I pray thee say that thou art my sister. And if you look at the more modern translations of these verses, It actually says, please say that thou art my sister. And I love that Abraham so politely is asking his wife to do this thing, but he's leaving it up to her. He's not commanding her and say, you will say that you're my sister, you know, flexing his big man muscles. But again, he's treating her like a partner, like they're in this together. And he's letting her have the option of saying, say that you are my sister. And For her, going into these situations, knowing that she's like, if I tell people, you know, I'm your sister, yeah, they're going to keep you alive, but they may take me and do who knows what with me. That's a little scary, too. What kind of trust is she putting into Abraham, but not also Abraham, but also the Lord, trusting in both of them that she's going to be okay no matter what? Okay, so they walk into Egypt, and apparently it's like a big deal. There's like a mega babe alert. Everyone's like, oh, this really beautiful woman's here, Pharaoh. You need to take her and make her your wife. Like, why? Why was this a thing? Um, She's 65 years old, walking into the city, and she causes the stir enough that the princes come and get her and take her to Pharaoh. Like, what? Okay, Genesis 12, 14. And it came to pass that when Abram was coming to Egypt, the Egyptians beheld the woman that she was very fair. And the princes also of Pharaoh saw her and commended her before Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Like, what? She's 65. Like, surely there's cuter, prettier, younger things like wandering around that he could be interested in. Why her? Well, there's a couple different reasons historically that scholars have thought about. Okay, Specifically, that phrase, the woman was very fair, makes them think that maybe she had a fairer complexion than the Egyptians and Canaanites at that time. And so that was intriguing to Pharaoh because it was different and novel, you know. It may have been the wealth and position that Abraham would offer 
as a sister. You know, there's this whole thing back then where sisters, like if you offer your sister in marriage to somebody else, it seals your alliance with them and also makes them more powerful. So maybe that was desirable to Pharaoh. Um, It could have been that she had talent as a seer and he had heard of that and he wanted to have a seer kind of in his house so that he could rely upon her for different things. It could have been that as a sister of Abraham, she represented a guarantee that she would have a pious and favored posterity. Um, It could be that he noticed that there was something unusual about Abram himself and sought to access it through Sarah. And also it could just be because she's very beautiful. I mean, the Bible mentions that she's very beautiful, so that could be it too. And maybe as she aged, she just got more beautiful. I don't know. The truth is we don't really know, okay? But for whatever reason, she caught Pharaoh's eye, and later on she's going to catch Abimelech's eye as well. Um, So in this case, it's it's Pharaoh that she's um, trying to deal with. And this actually puts her into a really scary position. So what was Sarai facing? Let's think about this. We saw in Abraham 1, if you go back and read Abraham 1, there's an account where there are these women, they're called the daughters of Anida, and they are supposed to be worshiping the false gods of the Egyptians, and they refuse to do so. And they are sacrificed on the altar for refusing to worship the gods of the Egyptians. And Abraham is about to face the similar fate. And so, but he's saved at the last minute. Anyways, it's like a big, scary ordeal that surely because it was such a pivotal point in his life that it actually made it into the book of Abraham, he would have told Sarah about it. So surely she knew what they did to people who denied Pharaoh and who also refused to worship their gods. Scary situation walking into a house where you know you don't believe the same thing these people do and you're not going to worship the gods the same way that they are doing. And also that you have a Pharaoh who may be making advances on you, but you're still married to your husband. Like, what What are you going to do if he does come into your room at night? Like, what, what are you going to do? Like, that's kind of a really scary situation to be in. Only the Lord could deliver her from the situation. And he does. And the way he does it is great plagues fall upon Pharaoh's house. We see in Genesis 12, 17, And the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that thou hast done unto me? Okay, pause. So that makes me think that there's a little credence to the whole thing of Pharaoh seeing that Abram was special in some way, that he had some kind of sort of supernatural power and wanting to access it through his wife, okay? Or through his sister, I guess. Unpause, going back to the scriptures. Why didst thou not tell me that she was thy wife? Why saidst thou to me, she is thy my sister, so that I might have taken her to wife? Now, therefore, behold, take her and go thy way. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning them, and they sent him away and his wife and all that he had. So the good news was, is that in 19, where it says, so I might have taken her to me to wife, means that um, he never messed with Sarah, that she was okay. She was fine. Um, He never attempted anything with her. And so that's good. That's good. So they were able to send him on their way. Okay, they return to Canaan from Egypt. They're blessed, and now they're even more wealthy. And they also have a maid named Hagar with them. In Genesis 16, 1, it says, now Sarai, Abraham's wife, bear him no children. Again, we're saying Sarah, the poor and fertile thing, had no kids. Again, we're pointing that out. Anyways, she had a handmaid, an Egyptian, whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said unto Abraham, Behold, now the Lord hath restrained me from bearing. I pray thee, go in unto my maid. It may be that I may obtain children by her. And Abram hearkened to the voice of Sarah. And Sarai Abraham's wife took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, after Abraham had dwelt 10 years in the land of Canaan and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife. Okay, so they have been away from Egypt for about 10 years. And so at this point, Sarah is 70, right? And she's like, obviously, like the children thing not happening. I'm 70 years old. Like this just isn't going to happen. So let's find a different way for this to happen. And in DNC 132.33, Four, we see God commanded Abraham and Sarah gave Hagar to Abraham to wife. So God was also involved in this decision right here. Um, a lot of times in Christian tra- tradition, outside of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, they portray this as Sarah trying to take things into her own hands instead of trusting the Lord to take care of the situation. And so her solution being that she was giving Hagar to wife to Abraham as trying to like fix the situation herself instead of relying upon the Lord. But because of the scripture that we have in DNC, we know that God was actually involved in this decision and that God kind of moved it along. Because if he hadn't, Hagar would not have had Ishmael. We wouldn't have this whole line of posterity that comes through Ishmael. We're going to talk more about that in the Hagar episode. But for right now, we're going to move on along. Genesis 16, 4. 
And he went in unto Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her eyes. So why was Sarai despised in the eyes of Hagar? I think that there's a couple reasons. Um, more in the Hagar episode. But probably the one that, in this case, to Sarah's mind, is the most important, is that at this point... There is a Babylonian law in the Code of Hammurabi that we know even today that we're able to see that says if a man takes a wife and she gives this man a maidservant as wife and the maidservant bears him children, then this maid assumes equality with the wife. Okay, so this is a power play then at this point. Um, Sarah sees that because Hagar has had children or been able to conceive and become pregnant from Abraham, that there's a chance that she might have an equal standing with Sarah in Abraham's eyes. I don't think that that could ever possibly be a thing because Sarah and Abraham are so tight and they're so equally matched. Like, and we see their partnership over and over again where there's such trust and reliance upon the two of them and they're so close. I don't know that Hagar could ever become equal in Abraham's eyes to Sarah. Um, But as women, we're insecure sometimes. And sometimes the little fears and stuff like that kind of crawl into our minds, right? And also she's looking at this and saying, okay, so my maid and my husband slept together and now my maid's pregnant. So obviously this whole infertility issue is not him. The infertility issue is me. I'm the one failing. I'm the one who's failed here, or I'm the one that the Lord is cursing. You know, that that's a whole issue too. And I actually started thinking about this when I was watching The Bachelor (laughs) this week. And I started seeing these women fight. And I'm watching these women fight. And I'm like, the stuff that they're arguing about is not that deep. I'm like, this. what's going on here is we have some emotional issues that we're projecting out onto these other women. And they're kind of squabbling over it. And it was the same thing here where I'm like, there's insecurity, there's fear, there's concern and guilt and envy. And it's coming out. And so Sarai deals harshly with Hagar. And in Genesis 16, 5, we see some of the jealousy and envy. Sarah says unto Abraham, My wrong be upon thee. I have given my maid into thy bosom. And when she had conceived, I was despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between me and thee. But Abraham said unto Sarai, Behold, thy maid is in thy hand. Do it to her as pleaseth thee. But when Sarai dealt hardly with her, she fled from her face. Okay, again, we see here Abraham so patiently and calmly saying to Sarah, you know, she's your maid. Do with her what you want. Which to me again shows the great love that Sarah and Abraham had together because Sarah's basically throwing a temper tantrum. You know, you did this thing I told you to do and now it's worked this way and now I'm despised in her eyes. She wants to become equal to me. And And Abraham's like, look, look, she's your maid. Do what you want with her. You know, I care about you. Do what you want with her. And I don't know. That just shows to me the great love that he knew how to handle her. He knew how to calm her down. I mean, after, I guess, what is it, 70 years together, he would probably know that maybe sometimes she has, as we all do, has like these little come aparts and he knows kind of how to handle it. And so he tells her, she's your maid, do what you want with her. And Sarah, in her emotional fit, does kind of take it out on Hagar. And so Hagar flees, right? Was it the right thing to do? No. But Do we all have those moments where our emotions cause us to do things that we regret and that we would like to take back? Yes. Yes, we do. And we'll see later on that Sarah and Hagar have this relationship where, I mean, they're just constantly butting heads over the kid thing. So no, no, it it was probably very hard. Now, at this point, again, Sarah's 70 years old. She's had to have spent so many years wondering, why am I not able to have kids? You know, why is this happening to me? What can I do to make it better? And at this point, actually, let's forward. She's not even 70. Let's forward on to when she's 90 years old. When she's 90 years old and Abram is 99 years old, the covenant of Abraham is established. So in Genesis 17, 1, we read, And when Abram was 90 years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect, and I will make my covenant between me and thee, and will multiply thee exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be the father of many nations. Neither shall thy name be any more called Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham. For a father of many nations have I made thee, and I will make thee exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after their generations 
for an everlasting covenant, to be a God unto thee, and to thy seed after thee. And I will give unto thee land, and to thy seed after thee, the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Okay, so what does the Abrahamic covenant promise? Okay, this is from churchofjesuschrist.org. What was just given to Abraham? To make it a little easier to understand, um, churchofjesuschrist.org says, Abraham made covenants with God. In these covenants, God promised great blessings to Abraham and his family. These blessings, which extend to all of Abraham's seed, are called the Abrahamic covenant. Among the promises made to Abraham were the following, that his posterity would be numerous, that his seed or descendants would receive the gospel and bear the priesthood, Through the ministry of his seed, all the families of the earth would be blessed, even with the blessings of the gospel, which are the blessings of salvation, even of life eternal. Now, if we actually go back and look at the conversation that God is having with Abraham, there's a couple other things I saw in there as well. I saw that he said, I will be their God, basically saying, I'm there to protect you guys. I'm there to be for you. I will be with you. I, you know, what I will be thy heavenly father. You know, I'm here for you. And the other thing I saw there, not only that, which is the most amazing, best blessing you could ever possibly ask for, but also I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee, the land wherein thou art a stranger. So for Abraham and Sarah, who've been so nomadic, who had no land to ever call their own, who constantly wandered from place to place, he's giving them a home, a home base. And maybe they won't see it in their lifetime, but their posterity will. And then he will be their God. I just think that those are beautiful things as well. Now, this is not the first time that God has promised Abraham that he would have posterity. We actually see back in chapter 15, two chapters before where we are now, that he actually, Abraham goes out and he kind of falls on his face and says, Oh, Lord God, what will thou give me, seeing that I go childless? Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. So, like, I don't have any children by my wife, but I do have one by Hagar. But I don't have, like, a legitimate child with Sarah. You know, he's really concerned about that. And in four, behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he shall come forth out of thine own bowels that shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now towards heaven. And tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto them, so, said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. Okay, I love this part right here. I love the idea of Abraham standing out there underneath the night sky, talking to God, and God saying, Look up, look up and see the stars. Count them all if you can, and so shall thy posterity be. I love it so much that when I went to create Sarah's portrait, I actually included that in there, even though he's talking to Abraham, because the way he's talking to Abraham about this says, you know, your your posterity through Sarah is what he was talking about. And so that promise extended to Sarah as well. Look up at the night sky and your children are going to be as numerous as the night sky. How beautiful is that? I think it's absolutely beautiful. So this is a promise that Abraham hears multiple times, which I think sometimes when we are struggling with something and the Lord has promised us something, it's good to go back and reread the promises that he's given us. Maybe it's in your patriarchal blessing, or maybe it's in a priest blessing and you've written it down in your journal. I think that's one of the reasons that we're you know, instructed to write stuff, spiritual experiences we've had down so that we can revisit them when we are struggling and we do need a lift, that we know that the promises of the Lord are there and the promises are sure. Okay, so that was Genesis 15, but we talked in Genesis 17 about the Abrahamic covenant. Let's go move back into 17. And I want to start in 15 because this is where God says, you know, you're no longer Abram, you're Abraham. And then in 15, he says, as for Sarai, thy wife, thou shalt not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall her name be. And I will bless her and give thee a son also of her. Yea, and I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be of her. Then Abraham fell upon his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born unto him that is a hundred years old? And shall Sarah that is ninety years old bear? But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, which Sarah shall bear unto thee at the set time in a year. That's skipping to 21. So he's saying, the covenant I'll establish with thee is when thy son Isaac is born in a year, you will know. After this conversation takes place, then some men visit Abraham and Sarah. It says three holy men visit, although the way that it's presented is kind of interesting to me. So in Genesis 18.1, it says, And the Lord appeared unto him in the plains of Mamre, and he sat in the tent door in the heat of the day. 
And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and lo, three men stood by him. So in one, it says the Lord appeared unto him, but in two, he lifted his eyes up and looked, and lo, three men stood by him. I think the best way to explain this is that these three men came as messengers of the Lord. That would be my guess, that they came on the Lord's errand, and so Abraham recognized them as as messengers of the Lord, as the Lord himself, right? Okay, when Abraham saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door and bowed himself towards the ground. And he said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in thy sight, pass not away, I pray thee, from thy servant. Let a little water, I pray you, be fetched, and wash your feet and rest yourselves under this tree. And I will fetch fetch a morsel of bread and comfort ye your hearts. After that ye shall pass on, for therefore are you come to your servant. And they said, So do as thou hast said. And Abraham hastened into the tent unto Sarah and said, Make quickly three meals of fine meal, knead it, and make cakes upon the hearth. And Abraham ran into the herd and fetched a calf tender and good and gave it unto a young man, and he hastened to dress it. And he took butter and milk and the calf which he had dressed and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree and they did eat. Okay, so I wanted to pause there because it's food and I love food and I love to talk about food. So I want to talk about the meal that they just had. So in more modern versions of the Bible, the whole thing about the milk and the butter and stuff like that is actually translated as yogurt. And so I was listening to a podcast that talked about women in the Old Testament and they got to this part where they talked about yogurt and they're like, what was he feeding them Yoplay? And like they were kind of goofing off and like laughing about it, which was cute. But then I was like, no, I really want to find out like what did they feed them? Well, Camille Frank Olson has um, a quote she has from a recorded meal with some Bedouin tribes that would have been similar. So this is a historical text of someone who's having a meal with the Bedouin tribes there in the Middle East. And so even though it's a more modern version of what they possibly fed Abraham, like I feel like it's a good description of what happened. So this is what the Bedouin tribe made this like explorer, this traveler. The traveler says they had dug two broad shallow pits in the ground in which they had made fire of woods and thorns. In one, a lamb was baked whole and over the other, a cauldron of rice was boiling. A brisk wood fire was kindled in the open air, and on a circular hearth formed of round, smooth pebbles spread evenly and close together. When this primitive hearth was sufficiently heated, the embers were carefully removed, and well-kneaded paste, flattened out by hand, was thrown onto the hot stones and quickly covered with the burning ashes. In this way, several large cakes of unleavened bread were soon made ready. Wooden bowls of cream and milk were brought, and the flat cakes of bread were served quite hot. They were about half an inch in thickness and had received the impression of the pebbles of which the hearth was composed. This most likely was the same sort of bread which Sarah of old made for the strangers in obedience to Abraham's desire when he said, Make ready quickly three measures of fine meal, knead it, and make cakes upon the hearth. The full Bedouin dinner consisted of lamb, served on a large metal tray, mountains of rice yellow with butter, wooden bowls filled with sweet clotted cream, new milk or a yogurt-like substance, and flat cakes of bread served hot. Okay, so you've got lamb, you've got these flat cakes that sound kind of like almost like pita bread, right? And you've got rice, and then you've got kind of a yogurt sauce. I'm like, hello, that's like Greek hero with tzatziki sauce and rice on the side. <laughs> like, that's totally something that we would eat. It's not Yoplait, it's it's a yogurt-based sauce, which is something that we would even have in like Middle East cuisine today. Like, think about lamb with pita bread. Yeah, that's a Greek hero right there, tzatziki sauce, and then you've got rice. Yeah, very typical. So that's probably what... um Abraham and Sarah fed the messengers of the Lord, okay? While they were there eating their tzatziki sauce, um, the men tell Abraham and Sarah that she will have a son. And it says that in 9. And it said, they said unto him, where is Sarah thy wife? And he said, behold, in the tent. Now at this point, tents are not very thick. Okay, can we but can we agree on that? Like they do not have very thick walls. So Sarah, who's probably like just sitting feet away from them, she's sitting right there. They know she can hear this because they're about to tell Abraham something he's been told multiple times that he's going to have kids. But then also the first time he heard just recently was that he was going to have a son, Isaac, in a year. So Abraham already knows this. They're about to tell Sarah that through the tent, right? Here we go, in tent. And he said... I will certainly return unto thee according to the time of life, and lo, Sarah thy wife shall have a son. And Sarah heard it in the tent door which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old and well stricken in age, and it ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I am waxed old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said unto Abraham, Wherefore did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I of a surety bear a child, which I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return unto thee according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. Then Sarah denied, saying, I laugh not. 
for she was afraid. And he said, nay, but thou didst laugh. Okay, so <laughs> I didn't laugh. I didn't do it. Oh, yes, you did. I, I like that little back and forth. That's that's kind of funny to me. So she has this this promise, right? And she laughs at it. And I think sometimes that is our reaction to things where there's a blessing that we've wanted for so long and it's finally realized. It's kind of like almost a disbelief. Like I've wanted this for so long and now it's actually going to happen. Um, I was listening today to a sermon from Tony Evans. He's a minister that teaches, I think he's out of Dallas, but he was talking about how God is the God of last minute. He waits till, you know, the absolute moment, the last second, and then the miracle occurs. And it occurs in such a way that we, the only way it could possibly happen could be from God. And that's what's happening in this situation. He's the God of the last minute. Um, There is no way that Abraham and Sarah would be able to have a child. But yet he's able to make that happen because nothing is too hard for the Lord. I love this quote from Camille Frank Olson. She says, anyone who has long sought fulfillment of a righteous desire, daily praying, and at times pleading with God to grant a miracle can relate to Sarah's waiting a lifetime for a child. The most feasible time to be granted the promised desire passes and no scenario that even approximates the dream can be imagined. Then at the least probable time, when every other circumstance underscores that fulfillment is impossible, the spirit whispers that God has kept his promise and will now bestow the blessing. The first emotion is typically a combination of fear and doubt. Nothing in our rational world can explain it. Then the boundless joy sets in with the realization that the promised blessing is all the sweeter for the weight and much grander even than imagined. God may not answer when we claim we need him, but he is always on time. How beautiful is that? I love that. Um, The first emotion is typically a combination of fear and doubt, but the boundless joy sets in. And that's what happened. I think that's why Sarah laughed um, because it's just that overwhelming, like, what? This is actually happening? Um, Pretty amazing. So that happens. Then after Sarah finds out that in a year she's going to have a son, she gets kidnapped, by the way. So Genesis 12. (laughs) Here we go. Genesis 12.1. And Abraham journeyed from thence towards the south country and dwelt between Kedesh and Shur and journeyed into Gerar. Okay, so why were they in Gerar? Why were they journeying? Well, likely there was another famine situation because Isaac and Rebekah later on go to Gerar during a famine. Okay, so in two, and Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, the king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. He kidnapped Sarah. And three, but God came to Abimelech in the dream and said unto him, Behold, thou art but a dead man. For the woman which thou hast taken, she is a man's wife. And Abimelech had not come near her. And he said, Lord, wilt thou also slay a righteous nation? And he said unto me, She is my sister. And she even herself said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocency of my hands have I done this. And God said unto him in a dream, Yea, I know that thou didst this in the integrity of thy heart, for I also withheld thee from sinning against me. Therefore I suffered I thee not to touch her. Therefore restore the man his wife, for he is a prophet, and he shall pray for thee, and thou shalt live. And if thou restore her not, know that thou shalt surely die, thou and all that there are thine. Thou Therefore Abimelech rose in the early morning and called all his servants and told all them these things in their ears, and the men were sore afraid. Okay. So a couple of things there. First of all, Sarah is literally 90 years old at this time. Are you telling me she's still a hot babe that these guys are still after her? Like, (laughs) I want to know. I'm like, what did she have that was like so magnetic, especially to these powerful men? Again, I think it might go back to the seer thing. I don't know. But he kidnaps her. Okay. Again, we know that she was safe because we actually see that Abimelech had not come near her. So she was safe in that situation. The Lord saved her again. Um, and the integrity of my heart and the innocency of my hands. Okay. So I want to take a moment, just a side note. Um, the language of the Old Testament, a lot of times is kind of stilted and awkward. And I actually read something recently. I believe it was from the Women in Scripture's Instagram account where she does a lot of her own translating. And she says a lot of times the language in the Old Testament is stilted and like hard to read and broken and stuff like that because that's how the original language was. So when they're translating it, they're translating that stilted, broken weirdness that's kind of there in the original language. So when we see stuff like the words innocency, I'm like, that's not even a word, but it's in here. The innocency of my hands. Have I done this? Um, 
So a lot of times when things are broken up and stilted and they don't make a whole lot of sense, it's because that's how it was originally written out. And just over thousands of years, language has changed and it's different. And so that's why it's kind of a little bit more stilted. Um, if you are having a hard time understanding what's going on, which I did in some of these passages, um, I would recommend checking out the New Living Translation of the Old Testament or the New King James Translation. Either one of those is good. And not necessarily to use it as your primary source for scripture study, but to use it as a tool to help you understand what's going on and what's happening. I found that to be very helpful. And while I prefer sometimes I think the language of the old King James, because I think it's so beautiful, there are times where the new King James specifically makes it a whole lot more plain and clear to understand. So just FYI. Okay, going back in, Abimelech has kidnapped Sarah. He's like, whoa, I didn't know that she was another man's wife. I thought she was a sister. I'm so sorry. I did it. I'm innocent. And Abraham restores Abimelech. Sarah's reputation is intact. And Sarah and Abraham are gifted with wealth and given a place to live. So why did the Lord put her through that? probably, I don't know, maybe it gave Abraham and Sarah a place to live so she could have Isaac. It gave him the wealth and maybe material things that he needed to like keep his family going. There was blessings associated with it. So there had to be a reason. Okay. Now, after this little interesting um, side trip that Sarah has gone on, she has Isaac. Okay. So in Genesis 21.1, this is probably my favorite scripture in the whole thing. It says, and the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did unto Sarah as he had spoken. The Lord fulfills his promises. And that's the thing. If you can take anything away from this episode and from the lesson of Sarah is that the Lord fulfills his promises. It may feel like he's waiting to the last minute, but he is the God of the last minute. He always comes and he's always on the right time, his timetable, not ours, but his. And he always fulfills his promises. Okay. Going on in Genesis 21. Two, for Sarah conceived and bare Abraham a son in his old age, and at the set time which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son that was born unto him, whom Sarah bare him, Isaac. Okay, so the Hebrew word root word of the word Isaac means laugh or laughter. So, you know, Sarah laughed, but now everyone's going to laugh every time they say his name. And it actually reflects a harmony of emotions, which includes smile, jest, to sport, play. And the Joseph Smith translation simply says it means to rejoice. So everyone shares Abraham and Sarah's joy every time they say Isaac's name. And I think that's beautiful. So let's talk about the sacrifice of Isaac. They've waited 90 years for this kid, right? They've waited so long. And then in Genesis 22, 2, God says, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. Wait, what? So you've waited this long for God to grant you this miracle of a son. Now take him and kill him on the mountain. Like, and this had to be especially hard for Abraham because not only was this his kid that he absolutely loved, but he knew how this would go down because again, we saw in the book of Abraham, he was there when the daughters of Anida were sacrificed on the altar. So he knows what human sacrifice looks like. He knows what the pain that's involved with it, the blood, the mess, like he's seen it happen. And to know what that's like, and then to see his son that he loves and know that he's going to be the one delivering this pain and punishment upon his own child that he's waited so long for. Oh, that's hard. That's got to be incredibly difficult. Um, And then did this include Sarah? Like, did Sarah know that this was going to happen or was this an Abraham and God thing? Well, I think back to Abraham and Sarah's story and I'm like, has there ever been a time in the entire story where Sarah was not included in something Abraham was doing? I suspect she absolutely knew. We have a quote from Spencer W. Kimball that says, Father Abraham and Mother Sarah knew. They knew the promise would be fulfilled. How? They did not know and did not demand to know. Isaac positively would live to be the father of numerous posterity. They knew he would, even though he might need to die. They knew he could still be raised from the dead to fulfill the promise, and faith here preceded the miracle. So they knew, and they had faith. Now, this, even though they knew and they had faith, and they were able to live through this, even though we know, and we have faith, and we're able to live through things, doesn't mean that there's not repercussions from it. There's not consequences from it. And some traditions state that Sarah had, you know, they say maybe a failure of heart or it caused a heart condition from her suffering through this trial with Isaac. Um, And some even say that she died before Isaac returned. So she sent Abraham and Isaac away knowing that Abraham was going to offer Isaac up as a sacrifice, not knowing if Isaac was going to make it through, but having the faith that he would 
or that she would see him on the other side, never seeing him again in mortality. Like, how sad is that? That makes it even worse. Like, oh, that's so hard. Um, some say that she died just shortly after they returned because of the stress of the journey and seeing him alive. She thought, okay, I can finally die knowing that my son is alive. Um, either way, she passed sometime near or around this incident. Okay. She was buried in the cave of Machpelah, which would become the closest thing Abraham's family could claim as a homeland. Um, you know, again, they're nomadic. They were traveling around in this cave of Machpelah, I guess it is, became their home base. Abraham, Isaac, Rebecca, Leah, and Jacob were also buried there. And shortly before the birth of Christ, Herod the Great enclosed the traditional site of the cove of Machpelah, the traditional site of the cave of Machpelah, with a large building that stands there today. So what do we learn from Abraham and Sarah? Genesis 18, 14 is anything too hard from the Lord. That's what I've really learned from, I think, their lesson. Nothing is too hard from, for the Lord. But even though we're waiting for him to fulfill our promises, doesn't mean that we can sit around and just twiddle our thumbs, that we're still doing things and we're still being an example to people and we're still helping others and we're still traveling around and fulfilling the mission that the Lord has, has for us, even though we're waiting for promised blessings. So I don't know. I learned a lot from Sarah and Abraham, uh, especially I think the thing that touched me even more than that this time through reading their story was the equality that they had as husband and wife and the way that they relied upon each other and the way they trusted each other, the respect that they had for each other. Abraham saying, please say that you're my sister. Um, and then Sarah trusting him so much to say that she was his sister and putting herself in those like precarious situations. Um I don't know. I just really love the love that the two of them had for each other. So yes, amazing things. I want to leave you with one thing from Romans. And this is from the New Living Translation. I I think it makes it a little bit more, more clear here because Paul can sometimes be a little awkward and wordy too. But from Romans 4.16, it says, Abraham is the father of all who believe. That is what the scriptures mean when God told him, I have made you the father of many nations. This happened because Abraham believed in the God who brings the dead back to life and who creates new things out of nothing. Even when there was no reason for hope, Abraham kept hoping, believing that he would become the father of many nations. For God had said to him, that's how many descendants you will have. And Abraham's faith did not weaken. Even though at a hundred years of age, he figured his body was as good as dead. And so was Sarah's womb. Abraham never wavered in believing God's promise. In fact, his faith grew stronger and in this he brought glory to God. He was fully convinced that God is able to do whatever he promises. End quote. Okay, so I would also say that Sarah, as the helpmeet to Abraham, was there with him through this entire journey, kept hoping, kept believing that eventually they would become the parents of many nations. Because God is the God who brings things that are dead back to life again. And so Abraham said, even though, you know, his body was as good as dead and Sarah's womb was as good as dead, God brought new life from that. How beautiful is that? I don't know. So whatever you guys have in your life that you are hoping for, that you are praying for, that maybe you think is gone and dead and will never happen. God is the God of the impossible. He is the God of the kept promises. And he is the God of the last minute. And he can make things come true. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. I hope you guys will read Sarah's story and come to a similar conclusion. Let me know what you think about Sarah, what you think about her and Hagar. Be on the lookout for an episode coming out soon about Hagar and the daughters of Lot. Have a great month. Bye, y'all. The Savior Said is not an official product or endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. All comments and opinions are my own personal opinions and not representative of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The music used in The Savior Said is Fireflies and Stardust by Kevin McLeod. The hymn quoted in the opening is Come Follow Me, lyrics by John Nicholson. For artwork, show notes, new episode alerts, and other fun and inspirational things, check out my Facebook page at facebook.com slash the Savior Said. Comments or questions? Email me at thesaviorsaid at gmail.com. Content, including artwork, in The Savior Said is copyright protected. All rights are reserved. Thank you for listening.